Father, that's a pretty daring song and a pretty daring prayer request to be asked to be consumed and transformed. But it would be best for us if we would give you full reign in all of our lives. Let you walk, Lord, through the whole household of our heart and mind and rearrange it, change it step by step from the inside out. We pray that you would. And that this passage, Lord, as we sit around the table and listen to you explain what you were about to do for us, move our heart, change our heart, Lord. May we be different because of the words we hear from you this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. We are approaching the end of a very long journey in the Gospel of Luke. Please open your Bibles in the Gospel of Luke in the 22nd chapter. Much earlier in the Gospel of Luke, in in chapter 9, Luke informs us that Jesus set out with determination toward Jerusalem. Now he has arrived in Jerusalem, and this is the end of his journey. He is about to do what the disciples could scarcely believe, in fact, he, what Peter had forbidden. He is on his way to the cross. He and Judas alone know it. Judas himself does not understand all that is happening. And in Luke 22, we're going to read about Jesus celebrating the Jewish Passover with his disciples for the last time. There's going to be a little bit of a learning curve because most of us are not nearly as familiar with the Old Testament as we are with the New. And this is thoroughly Jewish and thoroughly soaked in the law of Moses. You may remember whether through reading your Bible or from uh, Hollywood cartoons and movies how God set his people free from Egypt. For 400 years, Israel had languished in slavery. It was a sort of living genocide, kept alive only to help finance the empire of the people who had captured and oppressed them. Finally, in Exodus 3, we read that God appears to Moses, and he says that the cries of his people have risen to him, and he is going to send Moses, who grew up in Egypt providentially, but feels utterly incapable and worthless to the task, to set his people, to set his people free. On the night when the 10th plague fell upon Egypt, Israel celebrated a Passover supper. They were told to do something entirely strange by modern sensibilities, barbaric in our hearing. Every man was to take a lamb, one per household. If the household was too small, they were to share a lamb with a neighbor. But every head of household was to take a lamb, prepare it for his family, and not dispose entirely of the blood, but to put blood on the sides of the door and over the doorpost. And it's called the Passover because God made a promise. He said, I'm going to move through Egypt in judgment. The justice you've cried out to me about for all these years is going to fall on your enemies and your captors. I'm paraphrasing, of course. But here's the promise from God. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. The name of the supper, the name of the feast contains the promise. 
that God would move in their midst, go directly above them in judgment. But in when he saw their faith, when he saw their obedience to his saving act, he would pass over them, and they alone would be spared as a nation itself was humbled and destroyed. For years now, centuries, Jewish households have sat down up to the time of Jesus and up to the present day to remember that event, and that's what we read in Luke 22, verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. If you read in the law of Moses, if you read in your Old Testament, you'll see that the Passover begins a celebration of seven days called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him, Jesus, to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money, so he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. Let's reflect on what we just read. Jesus alone knows entirely what he's doing. Everyone else, even Judas, doesn't really understand the magnitude of what's happening. All the disciples know is that they find themselves in Jerusalem during the Passover. They are separated from their families, but they are together with the Lord. The opposition that Luke has been showing you growing from Luke chapter 9 more and more intense as they set out to destroy Jesus has now come to a peak and human evil is going to be at the table, but there's going to be supernatural evil there as well because we read in verse 3, Satan entered into Judas who was actually of their number. He was of the chosen 12. He goes away and secretly makes a traitorous deal. That's why his name represents to this day all over the world the worst kind of betrayal. The cowardly religious machinery that is going to put Jesus to death hates him, fears only the crowd and the loss of their own prestige. Their only concern is not for the Lord. Their concern is to destroy him, but to do it quietly, privately, and quickly so that they can escape with it until at least they get the crowd on their side. So they make a traitor's deal for Judas to betray Jesus for the price of a slave, we read elsewhere, and to do it, we read in verse 6, in the absence of a crowd. Now comes the Passover. And as Jesus celebrates the Passover with them, he's going to observe it step by step, bite by bite, cup by cup. But he's also going to redefine it. And what for them that night was the Passover became for these first Christian disciples, became what you and I call the Lord's Supper or Communion. Both of those terms are terms used by Christian churches from this day that we read about in the Gospels until the present day to refer to the time when we come together as a church family, take unleavened bread, that's why the flat taste and the wafer of the bread you've been given throughout your life. Take also a cup, look at it solemnly and do this in remembrance as we're going to read of Jesus. I was telling the men at breakfast yesterday, we had a men's breakfast, I hope you'll join us for the next one, that I'm convinced 
And if this is so, it's my fault that we have an underappreciated and an underdeveloped idea of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, communion as a church family, is massively important to Jesus. He instituted it by his death. He took what God had commanded Israel and extended it all over the world to Christians wherever they gathered in church families in his name. Jesus gave us two public and communal acts to obey him in, called normally by Bible students, often called at least ordinances. The first is baptism. Jesus said, from the moment you trust him, you are to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then you're going to be taught within that same community of the church to obey Jesus in everything he taught you, having the confidence that you yourself and the people who are teaching you have Jesus with you every day until the end of the age. That's baptism. It's an act of identification and obedience to Jesus. That's the first part. Even that is not individual. Jesus did not say, when you trust me, go baptize yourself. He told the disciples, you make disciples and baptize them. In other words, from the very moment of this public obedient act to Jesus, it takes another person. Someone else is baptizing you because you not only belong to Christ, you belong also to a family of faith. We belong to each other. Communion makes that even bigger. The instance in the New Testament church is when churches gathered, people who knew the Lord and knew each other would sit at a table together, enjoy a meal together, and in the ancient church, part of that meal would be set aside, as Jesus commands here, in remembrance of him. Jesus is going to take the Old Testament Passover and fill it with a deeper, better, richer meaning that looks back at his sacrifice and also forward to a promise that I'm going to explain to you now. My hope is that when in a few weeks we celebrate communion together, I will do it and you will do it with a fresh appreciation of everything it means and everything it promises. Because it's God and it represents his love, you'll never get to the bottom of it. That's the way love is. If you've ever truly been loved by anyone, mom, dad, spouse, brother, friend, whoever it is, if you've ever truly been deeply loved, you know that there's no end to it. If you are truly loved, it just gets better and better, and so it is with God. But the communion table, the Lord's Supper, gives us a chance to look back to his cross, forward to his promises, and around the table at one another, celebrating, remembering, and thanking him for that love. That's what he is going to set in motion right now in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? They're far from home, remember? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, last week I told you that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. In ancient Israel, only one man could occupy one of those offices one at a time, and then he died. Jesus eternally is prophet, priest, and king. 
And I suggest it to you as a devotional exercise that as you read the Bible and you see the words and the actions of Jesus, you ask yourself which of those offices is more clearly seen in what he's doing at that moment. He's always all three, but one tends to shine a little more clearly. In Jesus' preparation for the Passover, which would you say is showing up? Prophet, priest, or king? Prophet. They're in a city that is not their own, and he is simply informing them of two different men who are going to quickly do what they ask. There's a little bit of his kingly authority there as well. The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He'll show you a large upper room finished. This sets the table. The point of the Lord's Supper is He's going to provide the whole thing. This is the good news of the gospel. You don't bring anything to Jesus but your sin and your need. You bring Him your guilt and your shame. You bring Him your failure and your disobedience, your hard-heartedness. You bring Him your addictions, all the things that have separated you from God and separated you from others. You bring Him all of that. He covers and provides everything that you need. Verse 14. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. Now, perhaps you've seen this accurately depicted, but perhaps you haven't because da Vinci made a famous painting. What is really happening here is 12 men are with cushions to make them as comfortable as possible. They're at a low table, leaning on one arm, leaning into the table, not seated. Their feet are behind them. They're all together. The table is within easy reach of practically all of them. It's a very small, intimate affair. They're shoulder to shoulder and head to head going through the various courses of this meal, each of it reminding them, each of them picturing their liberation from Egypt from that first hurried Passover when frightened Israelites put blood over their doors wondering what it could possibly mean and what good it could possibly do. As Jesus serves them the meal, he says something important that is going to change the Passover forever and make it for his disciples the Lord's Supper. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Notice, Jesus knows exactly what's happening. He knows this is a last quiet moment of enjoyment with his disciples before his betrayal, his torture, his death. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Look carefully at verse 16 and 18. What is Jesus speaking of? There's a phrase there repeated in those two verses. They're very close together. He's being repetitive on purpose. Jesus is enjoying the Passover with them, serving it to them, and speaking of something that is not yet with them. What is it? The kingdom of God. He said in verse 16, I have wanted to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Verse 16, I tell you I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Verse 18, again, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. What is this about? 
This is the first and one of the underappreciated meanings of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is first a promise of a better feast that is coming. It is an ordinary meal. The Passover was and the Lord's Supper always is. In the modern church, the way our society is structured, we are rarely enjoying communal meals together as the ancient church did. We're just taking a little piece of unleavened bread. We're just taking a little bit of juice and drinking it together in remembrance. For these disciples, the Passover meal was massively important. It demanded their very best. It is a solemn occasion, and Jesus is telling them that this simple meal that they're enjoying carefully prepared, lovingly made as it was, is not even a shadow of the things that is going to come. A better feast is coming. When Jesus explained it to the church at Corinth, he said this, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. If you have your notes or you're following along on the app, I'd love for you to read this verse with me. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. Paul explained to the church in Corinth about the Lord's Supper this fact. Let's read. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The last phrase is huge. If you're the kind to underline in your Bible, please make a note of that. The bread and the cup speak of the Lord's death until when? Until he comes. You see, the Lord's Supper not only looks Backward, it also looks forward to a better feast, far, far better than what they're enjoying at the Lord's Supper, better than the Jews enjoyed at the Passover, a feast that will be prepared by God himself that will blow your mind. It is described for us at the end of the Bible. And when I read this passage and I pondered about what Jesus was talking about, the kingdom which is to come, when the kingdom of God comes, it made me think first of the kingdoms that we're living in right now. How do you feel it's going here on earth? Not well, right? With people in charge, it's, it's a mess. It's conflict and violence and strife and disunity and disease fear and danger on every side. Every man a victim or every man a tyrant, depending on who gets the upper hand. Families torn apart, children neglected, life in the kingdoms of this earth, very, very difficult. Jesus is saying, I look forward to eating this Passover with you. I'm glad we're doing this tonight. I'll make you a promise. I won't celebrate it again until the kingdom of God comes. I won't celebrate it again until the full justice of God is done everywhere on earth. The justice fell briefly on Egypt, but Egypt remained in its evil. It was hard-hearted until the end. The prophets speak of a time to come where the justice and the glory of the Lord will cover the whole earth and the kingdoms of this earth will be transformed because finally they will be in obedience and worship to him and everything that sinned is ruined, God will remake. That is the promise of the feast to come. The other thing I think about when I read the promises in Revelation of this feast, I remember several years ago going to a very unique country in our world today. It's poorer than you could possibly imagine and poorer than I can even begin to understand as many times as I've been there. 
and also uniquely oppressed by their government. I went there with some other missionaries and pastors to serve some of the most hardworking, faithful, dedicated, long-suffering pastors God ever had on earth. Through the wealth of a benefactor, when we finished the training with them, the host that brought us all together, the American man who brought us all together said, we're going to have a dinner to celebrate their graduation, their accomplishment. And we went together in a borrowed bus, packed in like sardines to a place that I could not believe existed in this very poor and oppressed country. We entered, we stepped out of poverty where everything needs a coat of paint and most everything you can see needs repair into a beautiful ballroom and apparently one of the few hotels and places where wealth has been spent to make people comfortable. It's the, kind of the play, it's the kind of place because of the politics of the country that the national pastors who have lived in that city, some of them their entire lives had never set foot in it because they were not allowed there without the presence of a foreigner. Anytime I visited that country, I always felt guilty. I always felt humbled because simply as I dressed, I was wearing something very much like this. I realized my little Levi's jeans from Costco, my cheap shirt, the cheapest I can find, and always with a coupon, always represents whatever I'm wearing, represents more money than some of these men see in six months. But this night was special. Through special permissions and through the investment of thousands of dollars, people who struggle to eat and rarely have protein were welcomed into this beautiful ballroom with a spectacular chandelier over the table. And I don't remember a bite of food we had. I remember it was good. But I don't remember a bite of food because I spent my whole night looking across the table and later touring the room, looking in the faces of these families, marveling like little children experiencing their first Christmas, enjoying all of this, clearly never imagining that they would ever have a night like this in their lives. And the marriage supper of the Lamb... Revelation 19, which we're going to read now, will make us feel as they did and many times over. Look with me in Revelation chapter 19. When Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God coming, when he says that he won't sit at this meal again until the kingdom of God comes. This is what he has in mind. This is rich with imagery. It's deliberately stacking one amazing image on top of another to give the reader some idea of the magnificence and the glory and the luxury of the moment. Revelations 19, we'll read from 6 through 9. John reads from future history. He's telling you of something, the kingdom of God that has not come yet, but will come. In fact, John saw it as fulfilled prophecy to write the book of Revelation. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters. In other words, he heard the voices of human beings, but so many and so strong that it sounded like a waterfall. And he says, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Listen to people worship God in the future coming kingdom. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God reigns. 
For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Two images stacked right on top of another. This is, we're told, a marriage. And the one who is the groom is described as a lamb. And that's pulling all the way back from the law of Moses. You already learned this morning, what is the purpose of a lamb in God's economy? To be a sacrifice. And yet the lamb is enjoying marriage. That's the second image stacked right on top of the first. The marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. This is Jesus who has purchased for himself a bride. He has prepared for himself a people. He has done so at the cost of his own life. And the bride, the people he saved in the word picture, verse 8, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Who are the saints? That's you, dear Christian. You say, I don't measure up. No, neither do I. Let me explain. The saint in biblical terminology is a very special word. It means that you have been set apart by God. You've been set apart for His forgiveness. You've been set apart for His purpose. You've been set apart to have His righteousness. You've been set apart from the sin and the guilt and the shame and the horrors that kept you from Him. All of that is done. All of that was paid for. It's all provided through the love of His Son. Now you have a whole new life, and it says the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Don't think that your good works don't matter. John prophetically sees a vision of the works done in Christ. Once people are saved by Jesus, they live for Jesus, and those works will be seen and celebrated someday when the kingdom of God comes. Verse 9, you can read this with me. Let's read verse 9 together. It says, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. I've thought about this imagery all week and I can't get to the bottom of it. And I think that's the point. The best party you've ever been invited to, the most fabulous wedding, won't compare to what God has prepared and the kind of feasting and the kind of life and the kind of kingdom and the kind of family enjoyment that awaits just in the future. This is the first meaning of the Lord's Supper. It is the promise of a better feast to come. Secondly, we're told by Jesus that the Lord's Supper, this is at the heart of it, represents an assurance of our forgiveness at His expense. I'm glad I don't have to be that quick, but if I had to summarize the good news of the gospel, it would be something like that. Your forgiveness at God's entire expense. People often misunderstand Christianity as a set of values that are pursued to produce a good life, and it's not that at all. Other people 
misunderstand Christianity as a set of rules given by Jesus. If you follow them well enough, long enough, perhaps someday you will be accepted by the one who gave the rules. And it's not that at all. The announcement of the gospel is that you could not reach Jesus, that you were unholy, that you were sinful, that you did defy God and hurt others in the process, but that will all be covered entirely at his expense. That is the point of the cups, and that is the point of the bread. Look in verse 19. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given, what's it say? For you. And again, it's all symbols, it's all word pictures. In the ancient world, few people read, but everybody can remember a moment. Everybody can remember a word picture. Jesus is walking them through the various courses of this meal. He's taking bread in his hands and tearing it. Crumbs are falling to the tables and the plates before them. They're sharing a common meal. And as he tears it, he said, this is my body. This is being given for you. In that moment, I'm convinced they could not begin to fathom what he was saying. But when they saw him shortly thereafter hanging on the cross, when they saw his body torn, when they saw his blood spilled, these words came back. Verse 20, likewise the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Bible scholars are still trying to reconstruct exactly how the Passover meal would have been celebrated in the first century, but they think they have a pretty good idea because the ceremony was so special and so sacred to the people, it probably was then as it is even now. This is very likely the third of four cups. This is what in the celebration of the Passover would have been the cup of redemption. As Jesus poured out this third of four ceremonial drinks, this is likely remembering a promise that God made Israel back when they were set free all the way back in Exodus chapter 6. He said this, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. In other words, again, God speaking symbolically, I'm going to stretch my strong arm across Egypt and I will set you free with great acts of judgment. If you've read the Bible, seen the movie, seen the cartoon, you remember the 10 plagues of Egypt, yes? Each one of them we now know specifically aimed at a false Egyptian deity. They're not random. They're not chaotic. God worked his way through the false idols of Egypt, through the false pantheon of Egyptian deities, and one by one humiliated them, each one worse than the last, Pharaoh hardening his heart in the process. And this is the good news of the gospel. Israel was set free by the great acts of judgment that fell on Egypt. You're set free because of the great acts of judgment that fell on Jesus. It's all at his expense, and it's all for your forgiveness as he pours the cup. Perhaps they finally made the connection when the Roman soldier speared Jesus. It was unnecessary. It was cruel. It was barbaric. Jesus was already dead. The blood and the water in his body were already starting to separate. When that killer saw what poured out of the body of Jesus, they spared breaking his legs because they could tell from what poured out of him that he was already dead. 
Jesus foreshadowed all that by pouring out a cup, saying, as I pour this cup, please understand, I'm making a new covenant. I'm making a new promise. I'm bringing you into a new relationship. And all of that is described in Jeremiah. Listen to this. Jeremiah 31, verse 34. Jeremiah, speaking of this new covenant, ends the description of the covenant with this promise from God, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That is quite a statement from the God who knows everything. Let me ask you, do you remember your sins? See, I've got a tape that plays inside my head. I don't know about you. All my worst moments, all the shameful, stupid, foolish, hurtful things. Maybe I'm special. Maybe I need an extra kind of help. But every once in a while, I can still remember things I said and did as a kid to wound my mother. Weekends are different for me since I, at least the weekends where I preach, because what often happens to me is I get ready on Saturday night, I make final preparations to come and open the Bible with you. It's not every weekend, but very, very often I'm reminded by of my past. I don't go looking for it, but my memory, my flesh, perhaps the devil himself says something like, you're going to preach? You? Really? You remember? And I do. That's why Saturday nights are so different. We had a pretty good family night last night. Watched sports on TV. And when it was all over and everybody's headed off to bed, I grabbed my sermon notes and my son looked at me and said, time to get your mind right? <laughs> and he's right. It was. And often, not every night, I don't want to make it more than it is, but often there's this conversation between my memory and this promise. Because I'll think to myself, I can't open the Bible with these people. They deserve so much better. If they knew, and then I'm reminded of promises like this. I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. See, God in his sovereignty has chosen, as it were, to treat my sins not only as if they had not occurred and they had been forgiven, but as if he had no memory of them. That's grace. So stop dragging your shame and your guilt into your life and bearing it yourself. Take it as I'm trying to explain to you that I do. Take it to the feet of Jesus at every moment and remember that you have been made a new promise by the torn body and by the spilled blood of Jesus. The way Paul explained all this to the Corinthian church, again, he said this, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ is our Passover lamb. All the lambs gathered up by all the Jewish households in all of time only pointed forward to the lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. Some time ago, I spoke to someone who once professing Christ has now actually returned to something that I can only describe as something like Judaism. He has become convinced that he must keep the law of Moses 
cannot be pleasing to God unless he carefully observes all of the Mosaic law. And he tried to show me this passage as his reason for celebrating the Passover, telling me why I must celebrate it itself. He completely misunderstood the meaning. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He was sacrificed once for all. The book of Hebrews, which explains at length and something that will take you 40 minutes to an hour to read, the priesthood of Jesus explains that he is both priest and sacrifice, that he comes into the presence of a holy God as your priest and also brings himself as your sacrifice because you are forgiven entirely at his expense. And Jesus kept saying, do this in remembrance of me, verse 19. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Jesus calls himself in verse 22, the Son of Man. He's pulling from this book of Daniel. He's identifying with that messianic title. He's telling the group, the traitor is here at the table with us. He's eating the bread and he's drinking the cup, but he's going to exclude himself from this grace. He's not actually in the family. He's going to trample on the gift that he's been offered because he is not with me. Look how, how little they know themselves and each other. Verse 23, they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Why did Jesus tell his disciples from this night forward, as Christian communities gathered, why for two millennia have we now been celebrating the Lord's Supper? Here's the final true rich meaning of the Lord's Supper. Number three, it's a remembrance of what he paid to bring us together. You see, those who were at the table who have trusted Christ were family. Many will sit under preaching. Many will sit at the Lord's table and take communion. Some even may be baptized, but they will not be with Christ because they have not truly tested Him. They have not trusted Him as Savior. Please do not ever put your faith in His instructions of remembrance and obedience. Put your trust in Him and then obey Him and remember Him as He commanded. If you think it's your righteous deeds that are going to pull you through, you're mistaken. We're in this together. We're family because these men have been separated from their families. They are a new kind of family that Jesus has formed by mutual trust in him. Even as they sit together as brothers, one of them is an imposter. Judas, we're told, is the keeper of, the, of the, what little money they had. He's also a thief who steals from it. His heart was never with them. He was in their number, but he was not really with them. Everyone who thinks carefully of the Lord's Supper when he celebrates it should make absolutely certain first that you belong to Christ. And we need to rethink what the local church is. This is a family celebration. We're brothers and sisters sitting around the table in the family of God brought in by the expense, at the expense through the sacrifice of our older brother, Jesus. 
You see that brother and sister language that you read in the New Testament and you sometimes hear in the local church? That's not just Christianese. If I had a few things that I could pray for for the American church that I knew God would answer for certain, this would be right up at the top of the list. That we, this church right here, and that this truth would spread across the United States, that we would understand that the Bible speaks boldly of the church, not as something like a family, but something that actually is family. Those pastors I sat with in that impoverished, oppressed country, those are my brothers. We only see each other very occasionally. But someday when God makes everything right, we will enjoy each other together forever. So if you're getting a little sideways with the family, would you stop it, please? Would you learn to get along? Would you learn to peacefully speak to your brothers and sisters and say, listen, we both belong to God. We both follow Jesus. Let's act like loving kids in God's family. Not only that, we're there because we're forgiven. What brought us into the family is the forgiveness of Christ, and that means that we are, or at least we should be, grateful. Every time you take communion and Frankly, every time you hear the gospel, it should move you to gratitude that someone like you, someone like me, has been invited into this family so you can call the creator of the universe, not only the king and the creator, you can call him your own father. You can speak to him in prayer and pray the way Jesus taught you to pray. Call him Abba. A father that is approached, yes, with reverence, yes, with love, yes, with loyalty, but with complete confidence because that's your dad who loves you, who sent his only begotten son after you to be tempted in your place and die for your sins because he had none of his own. When the Romans finally crucified him, there wasn't a single accusation of sin on his cross. There was only an unintentional acknowledgement that the one who hung on the cross was actually the king. That's your big brother, and God is your father because we're family, we're forgiven, and we should be grateful. At the Lord's Supper, please, Cross Point, let's remember that he made us a grateful and forgiven family. Let's extend this good news beyond this campus. We used to say beyond these walls. Now I'll say beyond this tent. Listen for just a second. Hear all the traffic? Who do you think's in those cars? Now, maybe they're on their way back from church. But some of you are laughing because we know that's doubtful. Based on current surveys of actual belief in Christ, not just demographic belief in the sense that I'm a Christian, in the sense that I'm not a Muslim or a Hindu, not an atheist. I mean, in the truly following Jesus. Know my sins are forgiven. Know that the future kingdom of God will receive me. Know that I will be at that feast. Those numbers are dropping. When we sit at the table, whether we're outside or we're back indoors, because I think that day is coming soon, let's remember the noise in the street. Untold millions of people in this country are going about their lives as if none of this were true, as if it didn't matter at all. 
ignorant of the good news or vaccinated against it, having heard some poor version that didn't reach their heart, their mind, and their understanding, they have turned their backs on Christ. They have no interest and no knowledge of what the table represents. When the bread is torn and the cup is poured, they don't know those are pictures and symbols of his great love. Those people might be your closest friends. Some of them might be in your family. Please tell them this good news. If you can't, if you're afraid to, invite me into the relationship. I'll be delighted to tell them this good news. But let's please, as a family... As people who are forgiven, let's extend this good news gratefully of the gospel wherever people need still to trust and believe in Christ. Let's pray together. Let me invite you, if you don't know Jesus for certain, let me invite you, whether you're in the tent or online, let me invite you to right now make your commitment to Him clear not talking to you about religion. I'm not talking to you about a new moral self-improvement program where you promise to do better. I'm talking about the contrary of that. I'm telling you to recognize that you can't do better and you won't, that you're guilty by God's standard and turn yourself over to him and say, Jesus, as one man prayed, have mercy on me, a sinner. I can't save myself. I can't possibly earn your forgiveness. I need your forgiveness to be granted. I need the gift of your forgiveness. Please give it to me. I'm sorry for my sin. Please remember my sins no more. Forgive my iniquities. He will. That's the promise of the gospel. That's what the Lord's Supper celebrates. If you do that, if you're online, please send us a text at the number on your screen or send me an email from the church website. If you're here in the tent, Make your commitment known in the card that's in your bulletin. And Christian, look behind you at the cross of Christ covering your sins. Look ahead of you to the feast that awaits you all at his expense. You'll be like a poor child brought in from the cold where you're hungry and unprotected, brought into the greatest of families to feast and to enjoy not be a spoiled brat, but to have a loving relationship with your father and with your siblings and enjoy life, a life that you didn't even know existed until God in his mercy broke through, sacrificed for you to bring you into his family. Live for him. Be generous as he was. Be loving as he was. If he is willing to forget your sins, what if you tried to forget the sins of Christians who offend you? What if you pursued peace with others the way he pursued peace with you? What if we sat around the table grateful to him and grateful for each other as well? Father, if there's a person here who doesn't know you as Savior, I pray that this morning, right now, while I'm quiet, they would turn to you in prayer and Jesus confess their sin and their need of you and ask you to save and forgive them. And Lord, the vast majority of people, I'm sure, at least those who have gathered here, come out on a, a brisk morning, sat outdoors in a church parking lot to hear your word and to worship you through music. So many of us, Lord, really are your disciples. Make us grateful. 
Help us put our sins and our iniquities where you do, Lord, in your forgetfulness, under your grace. Help us to be generous with our time, our money, generous with sharing this message, Lord, that those who we love who still don't know you may be forgiven and loved as we know you love and have forgiven us. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Folks, in closing, just a word of encouragement. I don't know if you realize, looking back a year, if we dial the clock back, this coming week would have been our last week of normalcy. It was a week ago next Saturday that I got the call on a Saturday afternoon that we would have to be entirely online because we feared at the time, it turned out not to be true, we had exposure to this virus, which we didn't know how serious it could be. I'm telling you all that to say you've been amazingly patient, kind, generous. We've kept moving. When you go back inside and it looks like things are trending in the right direction, when we're able to go back inside without restrictions, when we're able to worship and enjoy and sing as we once did, without the limits on capacity and masking and all the things that make it kind of unpleasant indoors, you're going to find a room that's been pretty transformed. You're going to find cameras and things that we've been able to do since people haven't been in there. That children's space is already remodeled, fresh and new. Some incredibly hardworking volunteers are pouring more time, more skill, more money into the other side. You see that giant dumpster out there? They're remodeling that side of the room too. When we get back to what we used to call normal, it's going to be better than ever. But this season, this season's been hard, but it's been good. People have been humbled by this pandemic, and that's what it took for them to be saved. Now some of them are starting to get baptized. Your generosity with everything you have, including your money, has been absolutely spectacular. You're saved week by week. You're served week by week by men like Jeff Cook and Dan Sharp sitting at the back table. They show up when it's still dark here and leave hours after everybody else does taking care of all of this. When you see them, when if you think about it, they're not doing it for... They're not doing it for praise. They're probably hating this right now, frankly. Thank them and encourage them because through your patience, through your flexibility, through your Christian kindness, we've stayed on mission. We're still the church. We're in, God willing, we're in the home stretch. Let's keep our eyes on the Lord. Let's keep taking care of each other. And when this is over, we're going to look back and see the faithfulness and the mercy of God all the way through the whole thing. I love you. You're so spread out. I, I'm spending more and more time during the week checking in on people. If you get a text or a call from me, don't let it freak you out. Okay, nobody wants to take the pastor's call. Okay, I'm not saying you will, but you might. And if you know it's me, please take it. It hurts my feelings when you leave me on read and when you don't take the call. Okay, and I'm asking those who are in ministry here to spread out and let's let's get ready. Let's continue to stay unified for party we're going to have when this is all over. I love you. Thank you for your patience with me. Thank you for your patience with all of us. Let's keep serving the Lord together. I'll see you very soon. Bye-bye.